Let's continue our worship with His Word. Father, we thank You and we praise You, God, that we can lift up our voices in song, our hearts in praise to You. We want to adore You, God, with that. But we also want to adore You now with sitting at Your feet and listening to Your Word. Bless the Word, God. Let Your people hear Christ tonight, Lord. And Father, we thank You in Jesus' name. If, if you have your Bibles or if you want to use the overhead, we're at John chapter 4. We're going to continue our, our series on the woman at the well. I've been going through John. And we're up to the woman at the well. This is part 2. And the last time I spoke, we looked at John chapter 4. And we went through verses 1 through 6. And before... I went into the text last time, if you remember, my voice was pretty bad. (laughs) Uh, But before I went into that text, I shared the background of the hostility between Jews and Samaritans. And this background is important for a correct understanding of this text of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Uh, Without repeating it, I'll give you a summary of it. The hostility of the Jews and the Samaritans goes back centuries before Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman. There was a racial tension there back in Christ's day that was as bad as it gets. And if you remember the last time I said it was almost like the way the Ku Klux Klan hates black people and Jews. Or the way Hitler hated Jews. It was so bad that there was a tremendous amount of tension. The hostility can be, be traced all the way back to the divisions of the kingdom of Israel. And moving forward, the northern ten tribes were eventually conquered by Assyria. And many Jews were deported to the land of Assyria. And the king of Assyria imported pagans into the land where the Jews that remained, who were not deported, the land was called Samaria. So you had Assyria, you had Samaria down here. Assyria conquered Samaria. And they deported the Jews back to Assyria. And then the king of Assyria, Sargon II, said, I don't want them reestablishing themselves, the Jews that were left behind. There were a few Jews that were left behind. I don't want them to reestablish, being reestablished. So he imported some pagans from different places that they conquered. And now you have Jews and non-Jews living in the country or the town of, or the, the city of Samaria, and they began to intermarry. And now you have a new race called the Samaritans. So to say the least, the hostility was great between the Jews and Samaritans because the Jews considered the Samaritans only half-breeds. And the Jews would purposely, purposely go around Samaria to avoid any contact with them. They'd rather go into a Gentile area, and they despise the Gentiles too, but they'd rather go into a Gentile area than to go through Samaria and have dealings with them. But John 4, verse 4 says, And he had to pass through Samaria. It comes from the Greek word, had to, day, D-E-I. And it means it was necessary for Christ to pass through Samaria. It was necessary that he went this way because he had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. This was no coincidence that was about to happen. 
This was ordained before the world came into existence, that Jesus was going to meet with the Samaritan woman. She was about to meet Jesus, the Messiah, and her life was about to change forever. By the way, to compound the idea that Jesus would go into a Samaritan village, he spoke with a woman. And not only with a woman, but a sinful woman. A sinful Samaritan woman. Now get this picture. All three things here was a, was a, were, were a no-no in the Jewish mind. You don't talk to a woman, especially a rabbi, and Jesus was considered the rabbi. You don't talk to a sinful person, and you don't talk to a Samaritan. A sinful Samaritan woman. But Jesus... I love this. Jesus paid no attention to that. Amen. And we should pay no attention to our prejudices Amen. and go to all people to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Christ did. He paid no attention. Many sermons have been extracted from John 4. There are rich themes in this text, and that's why we're taking three times to go through this because it's just too much in this one text is 26 verses but there are, there are many rich themes from satisfying spiritual thirst which we'll, we'll touch on tonight to true worship that is in spirit and the truth that's the true worship that we're going to look at the next time I speak and in crossing boundaries that we looked at the last time however we must not overlook the main theme and I believe the main thrust of this text is in line with John 20, verse 31, which is the purpose of his gospel, which, is a, which I said the last time. He says in John 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the theology of John's gospel is Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And the application is, believe and you will have life in His name. And in this text we see this theme that Jesus is the Messiah revealed openly for the first time to a despised, sinful Samaritan woman. What was Jesus' purpose in revealing Himself as Messiah to her? That she would believe and have life in His name. <clears throat> so let's look at how Jesus got to the point at the well where... He is about to converse with this woman. <clears throat> Let me give you the setting. Like I said, I went over this the last time, but it, it, we need to review this in order for you get, to get the whole picture. Jesus and his disciples were journeying through Samaria, as I said before, to get to Galilee. That was a major part of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee. <clears throat> and when they get to the town of Samaria, a town of Samaria called Sychar, Jesus is now tired, sits by the well, Jacob's well, sends his disciples to town to buy food, and a Samaritan woman comes to draw water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. And this is where we left off the last time, so we'll pick it up again at verse 7. Let's read verses 7 through 15, the conversation. <clears throat> a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is where the conversation begins between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And there's seven things I want you to see in this. The first thing is the Lord's request. The Lord makes a request. The second thing is the woman's shock at this request. The third is the Lord's reply. The fourth is the woman's confusion. The fifth is the Lord's clarification. The sixth is the woman's continued confusion. And the seventh is Christ's omniscience. And He is all-knowing. Let's continue with this conversation. This woman was not seeking God, no one. But this tainted, despised Samaritan woman was seeking peace. She was seeking peace. She was seeking to fill her empty life. She was seeking to rid herself of guilt, of her sinful life. She was seeking gifts from God, but not the giver. In verse 15 she says, give me this water. Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks for God. No one. We always hear Christians say about unbelieving friends, oh they're seeking God, or they're searching for God. But the Bible clearly says, no one seeks God. What they are seeking for is a fulfilled life. Seeking God begins at conversion. R.C. Sproul, quoting Thomas Aquinas, says, When Aquinas was asked why people seem to be seeking after God, despite the Bible's affirmation that no one seeks, from him, seeks for Him, Aquinas said such people are not actually seeking God, instead they are desperately seeking peace, seeking relief from their guilt, seeking something to fill the emptiness of their souls and their lives. You see, this Samaritan woman is included in the verse... Romans 3.11, no one seeks for, for God. And we know that only Christ can quench that thirst. And when we see people seeking to have their thirst satisfied, we think that they are indeed seeking God. But Aquinas continues to say, that's not the case at all. People desperately search for the things that only God can give them, while at the same time they are fleeing from God. Amen. Amen. It's actually God who is seeking us. Look at John 6, 37 and verse 44. All the time, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, there's God who's actually seeking us and drawing us. Why would anyone seek God is only because of God working in that person's heart. 
That's the only way I was seeking God or you were seeking God is because God is working in your heart. Christ is now drawing this Samaritan woman. He is seeking her. He wants to satisfy her spiritual thirst. Jesus came as the Messiah to, to give dry desert hearts living, refreshing water, eternal life. Of course, Jesus is using a metaphor to describe a spiritual reality here. He doesn't mean literal water, that he would, not, he would meet not just a temporary need, but a need for all eternity. He's seeking her. He's drawing her. How is he drawing her? First by request. Give me a drink. Now, I can only imagine the shock and the amazement that came over her. The Jews, the Jewish male is asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Why are you treating me like a person? No one is ever treating her like a person. And, and, and he's a Jewish male. We Samaritans and you Jews really don't associate with each other. Why such freedom in your conversation with me? And what was Jesus doing here? I believe Jesus was building up her trust in him. Yeah. But did Jesus need her? Yes, I believe a drink. He needed a drink because in his humanity he was thirsty. He needed her to draw it out because he had nothing to draw with. And in his humanity he was thirsty. You know, Second uh, Corinthians verse 8 9 says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, I, I believe with all my whole heart this is not talking about spiritual wealth. No. I believe this is talking about spiritual richness. That Christ left the glories of heaven and come to earth and, and in the incarnation he became a man like us and he had needs. In the incarnation Christ took on all the human frailties so he could fulfill the messianic role and die on a cross. And in the incarnation he became human and was thirsty and needed a drink. He was fully God and fully man. But this physical thirst was, I believe, was a catalyst to draw this woman to eternal life. And as I said before, it was culturally inc incorrect for a man, especially a rabbi, to speak to a woman. And not only a woman, but an immoral Samaritan woman. She was not only surprised that Jesus was speaking to her, but you know what else she was surprised at? That he would defile himself. Verse 9 says, in, the, in your parentheses, in your Bible, says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now obviously, there's some kind of dealing with Samaritans because he sent his disciples where? To town, to what? To buy food. A Samaritan town. So they have some type of dealings with the Jews, uh, with the Samaritans. But this refers to a... But this phrase in parentheses could also be translated, Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. This refers to a Jew forbidden to eat or drink with Samaritans or use the same dish or cup that they use which would defile them. If they use the same cup or the same utensil or there's other things too like touching a corpse or a leper would defile them. But Jesus is God and anything and nothing I should say can defile Him. He could touch a corpse he could touch a leper and it would not pollute him. Instead, whatever Jesus Christ touched made, was made clean. Amen. The total opposite. So Jesus answers her, I'm sure patiently. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is 
that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This woman can meet Jesus' physical need, yeah. But he would meet her spiritual, eternal need. The tables are turned. And now, in reality, she is the one, really, who is thirsty. Jesus desires to meet this thirst with living water. And the, Lord, the Lord's reply to one, verse 10, let's look at verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What Jesus is doing here is bringing her earthly thoughts, well water, to spiritual thoughts, living water. But at this point, she still didn't know what Jesus meant or who he was or what this living water was. Verse 10 reveals that. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who was speaking to you, this is what you would do. You would ask me, the Messiah, to quench your spiritual thirst with water and I will give it to you. Verse 11 reveals her confusion even more. Let's read verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this, that living water? She didn't understand Jesus was speaking of spiritual realities. He was offering her not eternal physical water, but spiritual water. He was offering her salvation. He was also offering her forgiveness of her sins. He was offering her uh, the ability to turn away from her sin. And a life that would not dishonor God anymore, but now glorify Him. This is found only in the Messiah, in Christ. In the Old Testament, living water was used as a metaphor to describe spiritual cleansing. In the days of the prophet Jeremiah, disobedient Israel was accused of forsaking the Lord, the true fountain of living water. Listen to Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, what they did was they abandoned the Lord, who was the only one who could impart salvation to them. And they foolishly turned to idolatrous worship and put their trust in idols rather than living God, who would be living, refreshing water to them. So the weeping prophet Jeremiah compared them not to cisterns which held rainwater, but to broken cisterns which leaked out fresh rainwater. That's what he compared them to. In other words, Israel turned from God to useless, useless idols. And what did Jeremiah pronounce later in chapter 17, verse 13? He says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. <clears throat> it's amazing. <clears throat> Israel, as well as people today, they, they don't realize, most people don't realize how thirsty they really are. They, they're callous, they're, they're numb, they don't understand that they're thirsty for the living water. Kim's mother and Terry's mother, when she had a, uh, a rare form of, of, of uh, dementia, they didn't, the doctors didn't even know what it was. And I never met my mother-in-law, but I will one day because she was a devout Christian. And um, so this rare form of dementia, whatever it was, um, 
she didn't understand what she was doing. And one day she was at the sink, Kim was telling me the story, and she had her hand on the hot water. It was so hot that because of her mind, she didn't realize it. She didn't felt no pain. And the water was actually burning off the skin or melting the skin off her hand. And she didn't know until somebody found her and, and stopped it. She was numb to the pain. And that's what people are. People are numb to how thirsty they really are and how much they need Christ and how much that Christ wants to give them a drink of eternal life. <clears throat> Let me interject something here. <clears throat> Outside of Christ, every one of us are broken cisterns. It's no different today. It's the living, purifying, refreshing, cleansing water of God's Spirit that makes us alive. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is the new covenant that Ezekiel 36 talks about. How this translates today is what Jesus said in John 7 verse 37 and 38. He says, <clears throat> On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. And cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Whoever believes in me, <clears throat> as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow living, rivers of living water. But the Samaritan woman still is confused. She was still confused. She was still unable to believe. Listen to verse 12. <clears throat> Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us well the well, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. How could Jesus think he was greater than the revealed patriarch Jacob? After all, Jesus, he gave us this well, and he and his sons and his livestock drank from it. Are you greater than he? This is, in essence, what she was probably saying. <clears throat> what she failed to realize, as Nicodemus is, is yes, Jesus is greater. Jesus is if you ever read the book of Hebrews, one of the main things in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater than angels in the book of Hebrews. He's a, he's a greater messenger than angels. He has a greater message than angels. He has a greater salvation. He's a greater savior. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the, the Old Testament priesthood. And yes, he's greater than Jacob. Christ is superior. So this woman is wrong on both accounts, as D.A. Carson notes. Misunderstanding combines with irony to make the woman twice wrong. The living water Jesus offers does not come from an ordinary well, and Jesus is in fact far greater than the patriarch Jacob. <clears throat> Jacob was revered by both Jews and Samaritans, but the Lord now begins to clarify what he means in verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What he's saying is drink this well water and you'll be back. Woman, you will be back. Because you'll be thirsty again. He says drink the water that I will give you and you'll never thirst again. Your soul will be satisfied. Your soul will not be a cistern for merely holding water, but a fountain of refreshing water, living water. You will have eternal life. 
her parched, dry, empty soul desperately needed this living water, as well as every single one of us. David, King David deeply understood this in, in Psalm 143.6 where he says, I stretched out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And the son of Korah who wrote Psalm 42 said in verses 1 and 2, he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? But the woman is still confused. She, even though Jesus clarified, is thinking physical water. <clears throat> Jesus, give me a pipeline to this water you are talking about so I don't have to have the drudgery of continually, continuously day after day coming here to get water. Amazing. Is this the human nature in all of us before conversion? Yeah. Her response was just like the crowd in Galilee when Jesus was teaching about that he was the bread from heaven. They also responded like her in John 6, verses 34 and 35. Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They failed to see that Jesus was talking about he was the bread of life. Just like the Samaritan woman failed to see that he was the fountain of eternal life. And verse 15 reveals a deep lack of spiritual understanding. <laughs> Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty again and have to come here to draw water. Still, she does not understand the gift. Nor does she understand the identity of the giver. That he is the Messiah. She was actually talking to the Messiah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And she had no idea. When she said, give me this water, was it sincere? Or was it ridiculing Jesus? Okay, yeah, Jesus, give me this water that I never have to come back here again. I don't know. I don't know how she meant it. But whether or not she was sincere, the statement reveals ignorance on her part. Matthew Henry says, Carnal hearts in their best wishes look no higher than carnal ends. Give it to me, saith she, not that I may have everlasting life, which Christ proposed, but that I may come but I, that I come not hither to draw. Her perception was all wrong. Water for her jaw, not living water for her soul. And the last point of verse 15, and I won't have to come here to draw water. More than likely, that means she will not have to sneak past the other woman and be shamed because of her, her, because of her lifestyle. Remember the last time she came in the hottest part of the day. And she came to a well that was, she probably passed many wells. Why would a person come in the hottest part of the day and the furthest part of where the well was? It's because of her shame. Because of the guilt she was carrying around. Because she had five husbands. And then she had, the man she was living with was not her husband. So she was carrying the stigma of guilt around in her life. But Jesus being divine is omniscient. He's all-knowing. And now the loving master is going to reveal the condition of her soul. He moves from conversation to her, to her need, which is repentance and salvation. Verses 16 and 18. Go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She was exposed. Jesus exposed her. Shock must have permeated every nerve ending in her body. I, I can only imagine that. But did Jesus in his, in his omniscience, did he reveal a sin to embarrass her? No. No. It's Christ's loving kindness that desires to lead this Samaritan woman towards repentance. The Bible says in Romans, it's, his loving kindness leads us towards repentance. He commends her for her truthfulness, but finishes by exposing the past. Five husbands and then the one you're now living with is not your husband. You're right in saying you don't have a husband. But to say the least, this woman led an immoral life. By the way, a little side note. Jesus refused to call the man she was now living with her husband. He rejected the idea that living together constitutes marriage. As many people have asked me that. They said, well, if the person lives together, isn't it the same thing? It's not. Marriage is a formal, legal, public covenant between a man and a woman. And if you read through the scriptures, that's the way they did it. But Jesus amazingly knew her inside and out. He didn't judge her. Notice he didn't judge her. He just stated where she was at. Jesus said in John 12, 47, he said... If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now that doesn't mean Jesus is not judged. We know at the last day, He is coming to judge the living and the dead, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. And He is coming to judge every nation and all of His enemies and all that reject Him. He will come to judge. But His first advent was not coming to judge the world. His first advent was to come to seek and save the lost. However, Jesus was now plowing her heart with conviction and preparing, to, preparing her heart to receive the seed of truth. That's why Jesus told her, go and get your husband. He forced her to admit her sin. If we don't admit our sin, why do we need a Savior? In order to make it possible for this woman to receive the living water Jesus spoke about, it was necessary for her to deal with her sins. Does scripture teach a man can be truly converted without repentance? Let's look at Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And then when we see Paul before King Agrippa before he was shipped off to Rome in his trial he said therefore King in Acts 26 verses 19 to 20 he says therefore King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but delivered first to those in Damascus then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You see, Christ confronted this Samaritan woman with her sinful life. He, he confronts every one of us with our sinful lives. You know, if we don't have sin, and people have said this to me, and I, and I don't know where they're coming from, but they accept that they're deluded. When people say, well, I really have no sin. Well, if you have no sin, then you don't really need a Savior. 
Don't talk about Jesus if you have no sin. Because Jesus, the very word means Jehovah saves. <clears throat> saves from what? From sin. From God's wrath. Because of our sin. As we begin to conclude this section, I, I, I want to belabor a point. We do an injustice to Scripture if our main focus on this text or any text is on a person or a thing rather than Christ. I'm not saying that we don't learn from this Samaritan woman. We have a lot to learn from her. Or, or Nicodemus, we have a lot to learn from his life or others in the Bible. However, they are minor themes and Christ is the major theme throughout Old Testament and New Testament. He is the focus. If you read all of the Old Testament, what does it do? In a nutshell, it points to Christ. When you come to the Gospels, what does that do? It shows Christ accomplishing redemption through His life, death, and resurrection. And then you come to the historical book of Acts. It's the history of the church. They proclaimed Christ. And then you come to the epistles, and they teach us how to live Christ. The whole of Scripture is about Christ. And in this text we just looked at, it's a sinful woman confronted by the Messiah about her sin. And an offer of repentance and salvation through the living water, He, the Messiah, would provide for her. But what do we learn from this text? How does it apply to us today? Or does it apply to us today? First I'd like to repeat what I said last time. Christ crossed the boundary lines. He went where no Jew would go. He spoke to a disdained person, a sinful Samaritan woman, what no Jew would do. He showed ethnic Israel that he himself was no respecter of persons. He loved, he did not judge, and gave hope to a hopeless person. He crossed the boundary line. For you and me, the gospel is for every person, no matter what his or her race, gender, social position, or past sins are. Do you have any prejudices in your life? You have to ask yourself that. Would something stop you from going to a person or, or a group of people because you're prejudiced against them? If that's the case, what you need to do is what I'm sure I've done at times. I've asked God to forgive me. And then I go and to preach to everyone God asked me to preach to. And I give them the gospel. Go to that irritating neighbor of yours. Go to the homeless, smelly person. Give them the gospel. Whatever, whoever the Lord brings to you, cross the boundary lines. Jesus did. Jesus wasn't afraid to touch a leper. He wasn't afraid to touch a corpse. He was never afraid to do that. Then and only then you can give them the living water through the Messiah, through the preaching of the gospel. But you must cross the boundary lines. You must drop your prejudices. Maybe we need our thirst quenched tonight. Jesus has living water for you tonight. Maybe we can relate to this sinful woman. Maybe we've lived an immoral life. Or maybe you didn't have five husbands or you're not living with a person in sin, but you have other sins in your life that has made you say in your heart, water, water, I need water, I'm thirsty. Christ can quench that thirst. He can forgive you and give you salvation, and you'll never, ever thirst again. Oh, you'll still want more and more of God. Amen. You'll still want more. But as the Puritan Matthew Henry said, it's not going to be a despairing thirst. 
But yet we still thirst. I still thirst for God, for the living God. I still thirst for Him. Today I was thirsting for Him. God, I need more of You. I need You. I need so much more of You. I need to fill. I need You to fill me with Your Holy Spirit more and more. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians, "Be filled with the Spirit." It's a present tense thing going on there. It means that we constantly need to be filled with His Spirit. Not that. The Spirit is going to be more in us, but it's, it's going to possess more of us. If you are thirsty tonight, ask the Lord to give you a drink. And guess what? He will. And your thirst will be satisfied forever. 34 years ago, my thirst was satisfied. And I never thirst again. I never had to look for anything else. I never had to do good works again to try to get into heaven. I never had to look for a different religion. I found Christ, or Christ found me, and I never thirst again. The next time I speak, we're going to look at the woman's response to Jesus knowing all about her. She begins to get a little religious on him. But he sets us straight and shows her the true meaning of worship, that we, as Christians, need to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the fountain of life, that you are a well within our hearts that have been born again, that streams of living water now live in us, and that we don't thirst like before, Lord. Our search is over. Our seeking you has begun at conversion, and we're seeking more of you now, Lord. We thank you, God, you are a river of life. And God, if there's anyone here tonight that has not taken a drink from the fountain of life, from you, Lord Jesus, I pray tonight they would. I pray tonight that you quench their thirst. That their thirst would be quenched. And they would experience eternal life now. Father, bless them. Bless them. Let people come to the, to, to the well. Let people come to the river of life tonight that don't know you. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, let us desire more of you. Let us desire more of your word. Let us desire more of your spirit possessing our hearts. We thank you, Father. We thank you for this word. We thank you that you showed us a picture of Christ Wonderful, wonderful love for a Samaritan woman, which pictures your love for us in Christ's precious name. Amen.